Right, I think um, I'll just get started. Uh, like I said, people can, can join in um, and I will uh, start by the, doing the introductions, but I'm sure people will continue to, to join as we go along. Uh, so, um, hello, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us today um, for our second Wicket Talk. My name is uh, Hannah. Uh, I am, uh, or I work in the customer success team at Wicket. For those of you who don't know what Wicket is, it is an equipment booking software that we provide uh, researchers in the lab and it enables them to uh, work better. Um, in in, um, in in the lab, sorry. Um, as the customer success manager, uh, a very important part of my job is to ensure our users remain happy, uh, but also feel feel supported, which is one of the reasons why uh, we do these these talks. Uh, so for the first book at talk, we address the impact uh, that COVID has had on uh, people's view on scientific research. And today we'll be talking about mental health in the workplace. So with me today, I have Kimberly, Julianne and, and Grace, uh, who have some great insight and knowledge to share. Uh, we do have some topics to, to cover and some questions, uh, but uh, for the viewers, if you do have any questions, please do put them in the, in the Q&A option um, that you will uh, see, see on your screen and we'll try to get to them. Uh, so on the panel today, we have Kimberly Holt. Kimberly is an IO psychologist with a double degree from Universities of Valencia, Spain and Bologna, Italy, uh, although she is originally from Hamburg, Germany. Uh, her research focused uh, during her master's was on functioning in virtual teams. But besides that, Kimberly participated in research groups and activities on health and social psychology. Currently, she's working for a Norwegian startup, RSIA, as a sales and business development manager, uh, where they are developing AI tools uh, for scientific literature reviews. Then we have Julianne Tate. Uh, Julianne has more than 20 years experience as a senior HR leader. She is an accredited member of Chartered Institute of Personal Development, Personnel Development rather, uh, British Psycholo Psychological Society and Institute of Leadership and Development. Uh, Julianne specializes in behavior change, leadership development, relationship mediation, and cultural realignment. She works part-time as director of Talent Tate and part-time as head of learning and development at Lucid Group Communications, which is a med-ed agency specializing in patient outcomes. And then we have Grace Shaw. Uh, Grace is a doctorate student in medical anthropology at the University of Illinois. She is currently investigating the effects of stress and trauma on epigenetic regulation of immune function during events of severe infection. Uh, current interests revolve around prevalence and severity of sepsis, plague, tuberculosis, and most recently COVID-19. Um, her work centers around migrant agricultural workers to showcase how labor is a social determinant of health and can be biologically embodied. It's very impressive people we have uh, with us today. Um, so again, panelists, thank you very much uh, for, for joining me and to discuss mental health in, in the workplace. Um, and I'm sure we have quite a lot to talk about. So rather than me rabbiting on for too long, I will jump right into it. Uh, so quite a big question to start off with um, is um, around the discussion of mental health at work. Uh, sort of general health, oh sorry, general public awareness has increased around mental health. There's a lot of information about it, but Really, is it something that we talk enough about at work? Um, I don't know, Julianne, if you want to open on that one. 
I absolutely will. And um, but before I just jump in, there's a question which has come in where one of our, um, our attendees has said that they can't see anything on screen. So we're not sharing any slides uh, on this, but I just wanted to check, can you see we four panellists on, on your screen? Brilliant. Is that? Yeah. That's it, yes. Okay, perfect. I'm so sorry, I was distracted. No, 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 Why no, are you asking me the questions I answer um, from the get-go? I ask you a question again, sorry. Would you mind? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the question. Uh, the question is around discussing mental health in the workplace. Is that something that we do enough? Yeah, I think that for me, it's not that we've reached the end point of it yet. As a HR practitioner, I don't feel great. We've cracked it. But certainly in the 20 years that I've been working in HR, I've seen such fantastic strides and we've really advanced um i think that it's you know a conversation that we have started to have really constructive conversations around but i i think that there is a lot more open constructive conversation still to be had um i, I can see grace and kimberly you nodding about that what's your feeling of it so I believe there's a big difference between each country and culture, of course. So if we just check um, Europe, which I'm most familiar with, so I've been living in different places um, across Europe. And for instance, we see that Scandinavia, so the Nordic countries, they have really, they're very advanced. I don't know if you can still hear me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you're, I think your video might have frozen, but we can still hear you. Okay, for me, it stopped working, sorry. Oh. Um, okay, so what I was saying that in the Nordic countries, um, we've seen that they have really high awareness about mental health, especially at the workplace, and they take a lot of care about it, and they have implemented a lot of different regulations for it. Um, but then maybe in Germany or in more Southern European countries, it's a different um, picture and it's still highly stigmatized. Um, I would say mental health issues. Um, so yeah, I think we, we still have to, have to do more. And what I can see in my home country, which is Germany, is that there's as well a lot of process and you know trying to reinforce awareness about mental health and doing different trainings and workshops as well especially for management level at the companies but i'm not quite sure yet if it really has sunken into the mentality of the people yeah and then to take that a step further um so i'm living i'm american and living in the united states and um it's it's highly stigmatized in the workplace. It's not really talked about. Um, most places of employment do like mental health week, which they like offer free yoga classes to their employees for about a week. Um, and that's kind of the extent of the resources available to you um, in a lot of workplaces. And some workplaces don't even offer any of that or any kind of mental health support um, through like medical insurance or any of that kind of stuff so it's definitely a conversation that is talked about but not necessarily any way to address it or help people um in that respect grace that's really interesting and you said um you know something which really resonated with me there about it's it's still if it feels to you that there's a lot of stigma about mm -hmm. it and what 
I see in the UK and within a lot of the organizations that I either coach in or have, have worked in in-house is there tends to be a bit of a polarization. And I think that, you know, there's um, a UK-based charity Mind, which often talks about that one in four of us are going to be impacted at any one point, you know, by, by mental illness. And I think that there's a few different points around that. We've got a lot of discussion around mental health, which I think is really constructive and really productive. We have a lot of increasing conversations here in the UK about mental well-being, which I also think is, is really, really fantastic. And, you know, yeah, great. Yoga, holistic therapies, well-being, exercise, all of that feeds into that. I do notice either in my clients when they're disclosing a, a mental illness or a history of mental difficulty or with some of the managers that I might train or work with a bit of a freezing up and even if there isn't so much as a stigma a real discomfort in talking about mental illness in genuine difficulties and a real lack of understanding about what to do with that and that's why I think the conversation is getting out there and that's that can only be positive but I I do sometimes feel ah yeah we've got loads and loads of strides still to go and I think a, a big part of the issue is um, a lot of mental health, um, like to help get over it or get past like a large barrier, people need to have time off. And like, I think the reason it's so stigmatized is people are like, I'm going through something and I need time off. But in this very like capitalist must be working, moving forward constantly, that's stigmatized because it's like, no, you can't take a month off work to like get it because it's mental health is not seen as like a physical illness like if someone got in a car wreck and needed like recuperation time at home they would be given that but they're not given that for mental health to like get their head back in the same place so I think there's a different way of shaping it and viewing it within the workplace that would be necessary for people to actually reap benefits from the conversations and the way we approach mental health and I would like to add that I think as well an issue on that is that helps for this stigmatization is that people need to open up and they need to show weakness and need to show their emotions. And I believe this is as well stigmatized, especially in jobs when you're now, I don't want to talk into stereotypes, but if you are high management level and you need to be tough at your work and you need to represent that you're, you know, a strong personality and then opening up and saying, okay, I, I, have, an, I have problems and I right now not emotionally stable, maybe this makes people afraid and makes them afraid that they might lose their reputation at work, I believe. So I'm just to, to uh, so, sorry, Julia. Sorry, uh, no, just to pick up on, on some things that you guys are saying. Obviously, um, it's it's difficult to to talk about mental health uh, at work. So, what importance do you think things like uh, mental health awareness day or World Mental Health Week? How do you think those are really useful, or is it a short term thing that doesn't really trans or is is transported further? It's more like we have this day, and then after that day we go back to not quite being able to talk about it yet. Anyone? Any, anyone who wants to? <laughs> I was just thinking because I did some research, uh, I was just Googling as well mental health week and month from the European Union and from the countries. And I, I just did not hear anything about it. I did not know that there was this 
mental health awareness. Well, I knew there was this month, but I had no idea what the European Union is doing about it or what Germany, for instance, or Norway or whatever country is doing about it because I don't know, it doesn't really show any presence in the country. So if we look at this global level, I believe that maybe those things don't really address the right people because I believe if you're already into this topic and you want to inform yourself about it and you start Googling and then join a webinar, then you're already in the state like, okay, I, I am actively um, searching for information or opening up. But if you're a person that is afraid to talk about mental health and is, has some wrong ideas about it in their mind, then I don't think that you would go and Google it and then do anything about it. So there, I believe it's unfortunately maybe not that helpful it's a it's a it's a sweet idea that hasn't been actioned or, or implemented yeah, properly it's, it's not I'm visible in the daily life Mm. I'm happy to come in which is probably controversial based on <laughs> what you've just said Kimberly um I have to say I love it I really really love it and I'm a huge advocate but I recognize it for what it is it's a PR exercise it's an opportunity to talk I do not for one minute believe that it acts as a panacea or it helps change that but um one of the things I was going to mention previously I've got to say on mental health awareness week and you know days I have been hugely inspired by leaders some of who are known to me some of who I've never met but I might have seen some PR activity on LinkedIn or so who have been open about their own well-being journeys and any mental health crisis or crises experience themselves or people who are close to and that has really inspired me to be more open about um we have mental health illness in my family i experienced acute anxiety after both of my children were born i can't quite describe it as illness because it, it, it felt very functioning but without those opportunities for leaders who i admired and was inspired by i would find it difficult to talk about my own journey or the journey of those who are close to me so i i think it is a very small step um, but it certainly gave just this one person confidence to be able to speak more openly about things like that. No, that's, that's, that's all good. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the more, like I said, the ideas, the more we talk about it, hopefully the, the easier uh, we can get, or it, it can get. Um, so with regards to the sort of how we can make it easier sort of um, in, 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 the, in a work perspective, is there something that um, you know, we can see, is it something that we can do personally that can make it easier internally from a work perspective, or does it have to sort of trickle down from, from, from um, the, the, the job itself? Um, I know we will talk about this in more detail later as well, but just your initial thoughts on that. I think from an organisational perspective, we need to carry on doing some of the useful things that have been started um such as uh you, you know holistic therapies such as having um grace obviously it will be different in the states in the uk we have um employee assistance programs um where you can access talking therapies or cognitive behavioral therapies etc via um uh, occupational health and from um chartered institute of personnel and development you know those are some of the recommendations but I think it's important to have processes and policies. Kimberly, you mentioned some policies in the Netherlands, for example, which are really, really advancing mental care. Um, I think we've got to be cognizant though that they are a starting point. 
and that you can have all the policies and procedures, but when we're talking about a holistic approach to well-being and mental health, we, we do need to have a different type of role modeling and inspiration, I think, within communities and yes, definitely within leadership and management conversations as well. Yeah, and this is actually when you look at um, research on culture in organizations, it has to be like coming down from the top and the leaders have to be role models. So what you, the examples that you mentioned before that you were reading about some leaders that were so inspirational for you, that's exactly what we need. So, I mean, in a company, it's each single person that has to enact it as well. And if everyone speaks openly about mental health, this is, our, this is great. But I think it has to be embedded in the culture and the culture comes from the leaders, how they act, how they behave towards it. And then normally the team will more or less copy the behavior. At Lucid Group, where I work Lucid Group Communications, we have a set of trained wellbeing champions and they've all been on mental health first aid training, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And the feedback we get is really super positive from that cohort of individuals and the colleagues that they interact with. For me, my comment on it's it's such a positive first step, and I want us to continue to do you know next steps and next steps because of of course to your point, Kimberly, what we don't want to do is essentially outsource all of those discussions to those who've been mental health first aid trained or designated wellbeing champions. They're a really useful confidant, if you like, within the organisation. But we, of course, want to replicate that at different strata through the organisation. I think that's really important that we get that balance. So um, there, there's quite a lot of um, people in the you know, previous companies that I've worked in, and I know it's quite popular, is the idea of mental health plans, that they have their own plan about what they should do, and they take it, uh, and some people do take it to, to work, and they discuss it. Uh, with, with their supervisors. Is that something that would be beneficial for people to do, to really investigate uh, what for them personally would help and then go and discuss it with work? Or do we still think that um, some places that will be quite quite difficult and, and quite challenging, particularly if you're in a generally high stress environment, um, much like researchers, is it just buckle down and get it done or no, let's address the situation here? I don't know if anyone has any ideas on that. Great. What's it like being a researcher? Is it uh, challenging? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so I think um, specifically around like the mental health of researchers, um, I do think research sets, especially like within STEM, um, and like wet lab sciences, it sets people up to feel incompetent, which can have like, um, the, the majority of your job is figuring out how to not do something, not how, how to do it. It's like figuring out what doesn't work. And so 80% of that is going, that didn't work, try something else, that didn't work, try something else. And so it kind of just like bears down on your nerves as you're trying to figure things out granted when you do finally figure it out it's very rewarding but if you're working on a really complicated problem or process it can you get to burn out a lot faster and especially because you're likely going to be a person who is highly detail oriented and um project driven and um 
probably have perfectionism tendencies. <laughs> and so a lot of that will can just really grate down on you. Um, and so it's a lot of swinging emotions because you feel really good when you do it right, but then it's like you mess up or you can't figure out a certain problem and it just grates down on your nerves. So, so in, in related to just uh, as we're talking on about research, um, and I know uh, particularly for uh, STEM researchers, there is it's a very high stress environment. So um, just on the focus of that, what sort of impact can that have on the work that that you deliver? Is it is it would it impact you, the person more, or would it eventually spill over and your work might not uh, be to the level that, that you're wanting it to? I think it would definitely spill over. I think um, from my own personal experience, um, certain experiments that I just couldn't figure out, like I felt at the end of my rope, like you, you start to give up and you're irritable at work and you're not being a good colleague. And um, someone in the chat mentioned like the increase in workplace bullying during um like at the start of COVID and stuff and I think a lot of that comes with like the irritability that people are feeling from their personal lives spilling over into their professional lives and I think within research um not necessarily your personal life spilling into the professional but you feel irritated in those instances of continual um trial and error um, that's a very interesting, particularly uh, your mention regarding uh, bullying at, at the workplace. Um, and it is uh, sad, obviously, that it's increased um, uh, dur during the pandemic. Um, but is there something that we can do to tackle bullying in, in, in the workplace? Uh, Julianne, I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, I think that any organisation has to be really, really clear that it is not expected not accepted behavior at all and of course having the right protocol and the right policies in process to deal with that um, and there should always be a whistleblowing policy for example as well if we're talking about organizational culture um, so the legislation would be different in each territory so even across the four nations in the UK um, we see that but you know I would expect that organizations were really militant about conduct behavior and what would be appropriate disciplinary action if any of those allegations were upheld. Hmm. I suppose it comes down to how easy it is that like you mentioned to, to, to flag this. If you flag something is, is, is wrong, it's how it is addressed in, in by the, the upper management. If you are shot down pretty quickly, it's unlikely that you will say anything next time. Um, but I suppose people just have to sort of push through um, and have those conversations as uncomfortable as they can be, but just have to bite the bullet, unfortunately, at times. Yeah, and always to speak to somebody who can be trusted. Mm. Um, so, you know, I certainly don't want to come across as uh, like so optimistic about HR and we always get it right. You know, because I have been involved in allegations or investigating um, incidents where, you know, you hear things and you investigate things and you think, gosh, you know, how, how did that come to pass, actually? I've also worked with people who have reached out to me. So it might not be 
anything to do with my business unit or area, but they've certainly come to me for advice and said, listen, this is happening to me or a coworker. Can I speak to you confidentially about this? And I always think that's the one of the most important things to have somebody that you can trust within the organization. They might be senior, they might be in the right department, but somebody should be able to just have a confidential discussion around, you know, this happened and that doesn't feel quite right to me. Where should I go next? And, and I think having some of those formal pathways as well as those informal pathways are really important. And the only way in which we're going to get that, Kimberly, you mentioned culture and some of the research of, you know, where we're seeing things within organisations. The only way, of course, in which we can get that is by appropriate training, support, making sure that managers are supported and trained how to deal with incidents. So within my career, I have unfortunately also had one or two managers who have come to me for advice on oh gosh, this is a tricky situation. Um, a member of staff, they have a mental health and they want to do right by them, but alarm bells are going off and they just don't know how to handle that. Um, I don't think I've ever had somebody come to me and say, I've got somebody, they have a broken leg. <laughs> you know, so it's more in which we can talk about things and to be able to say, right, okay, you know, have you spoken to them? Have you got a clear view on what reasonable adjustments we need to make? Um, do you know how to be consistent? Do you know how to be fair? And when you start having those conversations, it, it just feels so commonplace, so easy to address. Um, but I think when there's a lot of fear mongering or stigma, then unfortunately, I think that can turn into either overt bullying or maybe inadvertent bullying or hostility. So I do think the more we can talk about the conversations and have the right training and practice in place, again, it doesn't fix it. It doesn't alleviate some of these situations, but hopefully it can help people to have decent, constructive, fair and appropriate conversations about it. Yeah, I just wanted to add, because this was so right, what you said, in, in my view, um, but I believe before as well, you know, having this culture of talking openly about it. I think there's as well the step before to recognize what is bullying and what is just joking around because sometimes I perceive that there are some views about that maybe bullying or yeah, or as well, not cat calling, but talking to female colleagues in a certain way from some groups is still seen as like, this is normal. Why are you, why, why do you care so much about it? So also raising this awareness that some things are not just joking and some things can hurt and some things can be bullying, although for a different person might not be bullying. So it's also this perspective change, this, um, yeah, being subjective about certain situations and then seeing this and then as well having the courage from like a co-worker to step in and say like okay maybe this what you're doing right now is not good and you know it's it, this person is hurt or please stop it something like that so i believe there's as well this this step that we have to raise this awareness 
Kimberly, I think that is so accurate. And I, I'm not taking it off topic, but as an you know comparative illustration, um, when the Me Too campaign started to garner a bit of um, traction, a young woman at my um, place of employment at the time said to me, have you heard about this Me Too campaign? I'm thinking about a whole dossier essentially of you know Me Too complaints I have. And I was a bit taken aback and I thought, gosh, I don't think I've ever experienced that. And over the following fortnight, I thought of every single exchange or interaction, which probably surmounted to that. It hadn't upset me, it hadn't impacted me. But I think to what you're describing, Kimberly, actually that awareness of what's cool, what's mm-hmm. not so cool. I, I, again, I think that's really important if we're talking about cultures of bullying or a lack of understanding of health and well-being. about, you know, it doesn't have to be over catcalling. It can be a comment which might be very insidious, actually, and it might even be well-meant, but that awareness of, uh, sorry, I don't appreciate that. You, you know, and, and that confidence to be able to say that for one's own self. I also think that's really important. Right. And I mean, what is what's cool for me might not be cool for you. So it also always depends on each person. And we have to take that into consideration. I completely agree. And like on in that same vein, like I think a lot of this comes from um, there needs to there needs to be a more ex- like a culturally accepted way of um, of, sorry, it's morning and my brain's not working. <laughs> like of having these conversations of boundaries. So I feel like, um, like telling someone where your boundaries are is still kind of taboo where people get like offended and defensive being like, Oh, that's not what I meant. I'm like, no, I like, I'm just telling you that's where my boundary is. And like, please don't cross it again and I think being able to have those conversations more openly and more freely without them coming with like this taboo and people getting very defensive and closed off like I feel those conversations should be more accessible and more commonplace within the workplace within personal relationships just being like hey that was a boundary please don't do that again and that and that be it and be like, oh sorry I won't thank you for telling me. And like, that should be the end of the conversation instead of it being a big ordeal of like, oh no, that's not what I meant. Like, let me explain myself. And I'm like, you don't, you don't need to explain yourself. Mm-hmm. Just here is the line. Don't cross it again. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if maybe in, you know, gosh, a hundred years, hopefully in two years, even if, we, you know, we set a, 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 you know, a more stretching goal for ourselves. Wouldn't it be awesome if we, all of us had this innate curiosity, you, you know, and this innate assertiveness to be able to say, oh, Grace, you know, you actually overstepped one of my boundaries then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to, you know, the curiosity to be met with, oh, oh I'm sorry for that, you, you know, so can I just ask, you know, what was it that really raised a trigger for you? And, you know, like that's, that's actually coaching practice, you know, to kind of explore things. And I apologize for that. I won't do that again. Um, I think as human beings, we do tend to go into a more defensive phase of, I don't want to say that to you and I feel uncomfortable and there's now this peculiar exchange that we're caught in. And unfortunately, I think so much of our mental health and our well-being is tied up in our identities um, that, you know, we're not even necessarily looking at our behaviour elements of it. We're just trying to describe our own boundaries tied up in um, our identity. There's a really interesting piece of work by Robert Diltz 
on neurological levels, which I'd recommend to anybody dialing in today, where it explores, you know, kind of the, the environmental factors or identity versus behavior and capabilities. And um, one of the coaching practices we use is to have conversations, be it about our boundaries or be it about um, our well-being on a behavioral level. You, you know, so we're talking about behaviors and not you did that to me, or here's what happened to, to, to you. So I think what I, some companies might want to address is whether or not, because these conversations are unfortunately sometimes quite difficult to have for a lot of people, uh, which is sad. So it's maybe perhaps we should have a dedicated person that deals with it, that, that the person that can go to. I think potentially what a lot of companies might think is that's a cost for them, but in reality, if they don't have a person that's in place that can be that person that can support people you're more likely going to have a lot of or people who are get signed off sick because they're not comfortable in the workplace so there are lots of issues are, are building up um that they're not able to address because they don't feel comfortable or there's not a dedicated person for them um for them for them to go to so it's personally something i think companies should really look into and, and investigate whether or not it's, it's something that they should do Sure. I think a lot of companies are taking more of that on board. Um, I was at an engagement conference about 18 months ago, um, probably a bit longer actually, because it was before I was there in person. Um, but there was a speaker who was head of happiness um, at an organization. And actually her role, it's a, it's a HR role. You know, HR is often in some organizations seen as people, you know, they've, they've rebranded as, as people rather than human resources. Um, and she was talking about really legitimate day-to-day -day HR commercial stuff like employee engagement, like employee well-being, um, like managing sickness, absence and, and occupational health. Um, but I thought what a fantastic proactive step for her organisation to refer to that as head of happiness and, you know, really embracing and you know recognizing that there is a direct correlation in organizations between employee engagement of which well-being and culture is is one of the levers um and the profitability that an organization will then enjoy so i, I think the research is out there the data is out there and i think that lots of companies are cottoning on to that i would love to see that as just part of core in all in all business that it wasn't seen as something fresh or new that was just yeah you got your happiness officer you got your well-being officer won't that be fantastic when that is just absolutely to every organization out there i think we can also see that because more and more companies are interested in hiring psychologists or iop psychologists and we see um, in germany there are a lot of new studies and a lot more universities are offering this because we see that there's a connection as well to bring in the psychological view into an organization and it's just beneficial for for everyone and uh, i think this is a kind of recent development which will be growing i strongly believe excellent so uh unfortunately because it is, uh <laughs> because we're still in covid times uh we i think it is important that we uh, do a have a brief conversation uh, just regarding uh, COVID as much as we would love to never talk about that again. 
Um, but there's been a lot of talk uh, about COVID, particularly the impact on uh, the physical aspects of COVID. But um, do we are we talking enough about the mental health aspect or the mental stress that COVID has caused? And are we really prepared for the potential outcome that this is going to have? Or are we still just focusing on let's get over the, the physical impact of it? Don't know if anyone has any opinions uh, on that at all. I would say in the United States, the conversation around mental health is there, but again, there's like there's no action on it. So um, all actionable items are still talking about like the physical health of just like not getting sick from COVID. It's not talking about um, like the changing roles of parents and how they like have a million more things on their plate being educators in their home while working from home and being daycare and um, or just the burnout and people not being able to see their families for years at a time um, and stuff around that and it's like people are aware that it's happening and some workplaces are being very gracious in that respect, which is great being like, look, we get it. Everyone's not in a good place right now. <laughs> and I do think COVID is opening doors to help destigmatize mental health because I feel like this was such a cataclysm um, that everyone has had their mental health affected in some way or, or another. And so it kind of makes it, it like levels the playing field where it's like, this is mental health and making sure it is addressed. Like it can happen to anyone and therefore it should be commonplace to talk about and to address within the workplace. In Germany as well, we have debates about it and there are news articles and the press is talking about the negative impacts of as well. We had this lockdown now since November, so a lot of people were suffering. Um, but I don't think that anyone is really uh, estimating the impact it will have on us. And especially now there are more and more studies about children in corona times and how much they are suffering and i don't have any numbers with me right now i don't have any data but um there are more and more children with depression with um, unusual behavior with mental health issues and this will backfire at us if a whole generation i don't want to be too catastrophic but if if a generation right now starts into their life being already mentally impacted. And I hope that they can uh, bounce back from it and that once all this is over, they can overcome what, what happened. But if it continues, we will have as well a lot of costs to the health system for all the um, therapy places. And in Germany, I know that we have long waiting lists to get a therapy place. It's like sometimes a month and we have to increase this and we have to be aware that this pandemic will have a huge impact on the therapy places and of the infrastructure we have in each country and the, the government needs to be prepared for that and put more money, more support into the sector because I mean, in Germany right now is just not capable of dealing with the situation. 
I agree. I think it's going to be interesting to see what the research does say and what the data does come out with. Um, and it's hard to know, isn't it, whether it is going to be cataclysmic or whether things will, things will turn out okay. Um, what I have noticed so far is that, you know, on three different approaches, one in my coaching practice, individuals are presenting with increased um, anxiety or increased insecurity about what the future holds. So in coaching, we look at, okay, well, what's your goal and how do we navigate toward it? And I'm noticing a lot more uncertainty. Normally I can get past the goal quite quickly. I'm having to spend one or two sessions really understanding what an individual's goal is because they're not quite sure of what that two years, three years, 10 years future looks like. Um, my second observation is that um, relationships have fractured. So I've certainly been invited in to mediate in either one-on-one -on -one, um, relationships or at broader leadership levels. I um, was at an event uh, a few weeks ago where we had you know, 23 people in the room. That was essentially group mediation. Um, and I think that if we hadn't had COVID, I, I think that there probably still would have been some wrinkles for that, that cohort to iron through. They were definitely compounded by not being able to get together and have conversations that you know so we really found some tensions really really arising in what was probably ordinarily just just a few bumps in the road um and my third observation is then the organizations that i am involved in i would say that we are circumspect about it um and i'm conscious of the question in say so, you know do, do you have any advice on where I've seen things working really well, it's real community focused, and that can be community within an organization. Um, but one of the organizations I'm in, Lucid, um, one of the managing partners set up Lucid Little Ones, and it was essentially a space for people to come together and share whether or not you've got a 16 year old or a six month old, you know, some resources or games, or has anybody seen this YouTube video with Rob Biddulph and we do uh, cartoons together. And it was so supportive, like on, honestly, everybody involved with it, even people who didn't have kids still wanted to get involved in it. So where I've seen things working, it's where there is some type of intervention that pulls people together. Um, but in terms of that being circumspect as, you know, a senior leader within my organization, we're just not sure yet. We're not sure if we're going to be all working remotely, what that looks like. The CIPD has published lots of articles on it. Everything's badged at the new place of work. And I think that many of us probably on this call today would welcome changes and see that as a positive. One of my clients talks about being able to run more often to walk the dog at lunchtime. So we see all these positive attributes that we know correlate with positive mental well-being. Um, but we're just not quite sure to what extent that will have a positive impact to us or again, what organizations will be able to endure. And um, I put organizations into the whole agencies brackets, you know, so to your point, Kimberly schools, universities, you know, so that the whole set of systems, how we operate together, what that looks like, where the funding comes from, how we're able to support one another. I, I think that's the biggest piece for me. Like, we just don't know yet how that's gonna play out. 
So uh, just some final uh, thoughts, and it goes into what we've just been discussing, because, um, you know, high stress environment on top of COVID as well is, is difficult. Um, what are things that people can look out for, for their own, own mental health um, going forward to see if they, they can sort of address it before it becomes a, a, a too big of a, a sort of issue for them? I don't know if, Grace, you want to start on that one? Yeah, I'll start. Um, so for me personally, I, I do like a lot of mindfulness, like check-ins on myself. Um, so like in the mornings while I'm having like coffee and just kind of preparing myself for the day, I'm like checking in on like how I actually feel. Cause it's really easy to just get in a habit and just like not think like what you're feeling in your head, in your heart, and in your body, like sometimes you can be like, my knee's kind of hard, maybe don't go on a run. <laughs> like, um, but having those things of like, well, I'm feeling anxious. Like I can just feel it in my chest. Like I'm feeling anxious, why? And trying to like pinpoint those places. And so I do, um, journaling really helps me because it also keeps me honest of how like I'm feeling because it's written down. It's like, there's a record of, I was feeling like crap last week because of the specific thing. So maybe the reason I'm having this anxiety is actually stemming from something that happened to me last week um, and kind of pinpointing those places. And once you're able to pinpoint a source of something that's pulling you down, you're more likely going to be able to find solutions to that. Um, and especially if you are someone who is, um, has access to mental uh, health care providers, it gives you a, like a springboard to start those conversations with them where they can help you like build the toolkit to really address the things in your life that are negatively impacting you. So I don't know if someone wants to spring off of that, but. Uh, yeah, Kimberly, do you have anything to, to add on that? I think Grace... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, everything that Grace mentioned is very, very helpful as well from a psychological point of view. That's, that's already good advices. Um, I'm as well a big fan of talking. I believe as soon as you start talking about a problem, just reaching out to a friend, to a family member, um, and just addressing how you feel, this can already help just to talk about your problems and maybe to have a different, um, diff uh, another person have a look at your problems. Maybe they can come up with a solution or maybe they can see a solution that right now you cannot see. And if it's a serious uh, mental health issue, of course, then maybe the person can't help, but maybe the other person can tell you, okay, this is serious. You should go and, and see someone. And the same is true at the workplace. So as soon as you feel like there's something like you're close to burnout, you're really stressed, go and find help, go and talk to your colleague or your supervisor. So this, I mean, in psychology, social support is just a very, very um, important factor which can prevent mental health issues and which can help you to improve. Um, so, so this for me is a big source of help. 
yeah, I think everything's sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I think everything's being covered. I, I guess the you know, the one thing for me, Hannah, earlier on you mentioned, you know, would we be supportive of personal plans, for example? And and I think that, you know, what you've both talked about, Grace and Kimberly, is you know, that personal approach. And if we think about our well-being in the same way as we think about our physical health, you, you know, so yeah, nutrition fitness, enough sleep, um, enough rest. So if we're adding that in, it's, well, what works for, works for me? And I often think that's probably the most overused and the most insightful question I ever ask in coaching practice. It's, is it helpful or not? Mm -hmm. So if you're noticing changes and maybe you want to stay in more, is, is that helpful? You, you know, you might be finding that, yeah, that's great. I'm staying in more and I, I feel more restored and I feel more mindful. If it's I'm staying indoors more and I don't want to go outside, is it helpful? No, actually, I'm beginning to really spiral. I'm beginning to, you know, find it difficult to interact with society. I'm finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning. I always think that's the key thing, you know, being aware of changes for ourselves really understanding one's own self. You've both spoken about so eloquently, but then with, you know, if there are changes, really tuning into, okay, is that helping me or is that really um, going against me at the moment? And then trying into, you know, so what am I going to do about that? Um, Kimberly, I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes seeking help can just reflect back to us. And my final thought on it is when we do ask for help, being really clear on what that request is. And Grace, earlier on, you mentioned boundaries. I think that is so important. And I'm chuckling to myself, I don't mind sharing a very personal anecdote. When my second child was super, super small and I hadn't slept and I was so anxious and I didn't want to leave the house. Um, and I spoke to my partner about it. And um, <laughs> he said, uh, you, you know, thank you for, if you ever get to that point where you feel you can't cope, I want you to talk to me about it. And I had that little moment of, I think, I think that's what this conversation is. Um, I, I am telling you, I am, I am saying I'm at a point where I can't cope. And I'm happy to share that because I'm super assertive. Anyone who knows me would say I'm really clear on my boundaries. I'm Irish, I'm happy to be very direct. Um, but I think how easy it is for many of us to think that we've had the conversation and for us to maybe not be heard. And particularly if it does feel stigmatized or so, how open and assertive we have to be to say, employer or partner or best friend or parent, or carer, you know, this is what I need. I need you to let me sleep or take me to the doctors, you know, whatever that might be. And I think that cry for help has to be explicit sometimes. I agree, totally. Excellent. Uh, brilliant. That was a really interesting uh, conversation we had. I know there's some more questions coming in, but I think uh, it's uh, sort of uh, good to note to end on. Any questions that we haven't covered, uh, I'll make sure to, to follow up um, and uh, address them. Uh, so on that note, I just want to thank uh, the uh, amazing panellists uh, for their input. As I mentioned, I thought it, I thought it was a really interesting discussion. Uh, and I hope we managed it to cover some areas that people thought were, were very useful. Uh, thank you to all the people who joined the call today. Um, and again, to the uh, panelists for their participation. And uh, that's uh, really it. So thanks again. And uh, I hope you all continue to have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much for inviting me on. Take care. Okay. Bye.